let's open up our Bibles to two sections of Scripture this morning, two sections of Scripture, and I'm going to have you mark your finger in one of them, and then mark your finger in the other, we're going to be going back and forth between the two today, they're very important. Let's go to 1 Samuel 21, 1 Samuel 21, that's the first passage of Scripture we're going to turn to today, and that is found on page 244, 244 of your pew Bible, and let's also turn to Psalm 34. Psalm 34, page 244 of your pew Bible, which is 1 Samuel 21 and Psalm 34, which begins on page 463, 463. Let's read together the entirety of Psalm 34. And we'll reference verse 21 later. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer one hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days, that he may be good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and he and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord against those who do, is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants, and those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Father, would you give us grace to understand not only this passage, but the truth of it, the truth that you're trying to communicate to us, your trustworthy character, your awe-inspiring nature. Help us to see how the fear of man so harms us and the fear of God so liberates us. Help us to see with eyes of faith, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'd like to take a, kind of an extended introduction here and tell you three stories. Three stories of Christian people. I think you'll be able to relate to all of them. So follow along with me and we'll 
you'll see how that ties into the passage. First person is an older lady. Let's call her Trudy. She is a retiree, and she had some health issues, so the doctor recommended that she take up walking, and she started walking in a retiree lady walking group. Turns out the ladies in her walking group are all wealthy. They drive luxury sedans, and they talk of trips to Europe. But Trudy has come from a middle-class background and married a middle-class man. And the idea of travel for her is a day trip to the Grand Canyon. Well, she felt insecure about that. And one day, she was in a jewelry shop and saw a very expensive ruby ring. She paid too much for it and bought it. Wore it while she was walking, but none of her rich friends paid it any attention. One day, while she was at church, she forgot she had it on, and one of the ladies in her church noticed it and said, wow, that's a beautiful ring. And she said, oh yes, it's a family heirloom. On the way home from church, her husband said, what? That, fam that ring's not a family heirloom. You bought it six weeks ago. She said, well, of course it's a family heirloom. I'm going to give it to my daughter. He said, why don't you just tell her you liked it and you bought it? That would have been fine. And she said, well, I didn't want to hurt her feelings. Let's move on to another person. Let's call him Jim. He's a Christian dad, about my age. He's a first-generation Christian, raising his family in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. His children seem to be following him in faith. He's growing in grace, loves his local church. Started working very hard, and lo and behold, was offered lucrative promotion at his work. There were over 50 people who were in line for that promotion, and he got it. He didn't even put in for it, but they offered it to him. The trouble is, he'd have to move about 800 miles away. He visited that town, but there's no Bible-teaching church within a one-hour drive. He was worried that he would fall out of favor with his management team. He was worried that he would lose the job that he had. And so he picked up his family and moved to that town. Three years later, his children are in active rebellion to the Lord and they haven't darkened the door of a local church in months. Jim's marriage is falling apart. He visits a Christian counselor who asks him, are you really a Christian? And Jim did not grow ashamed that the counselor would have to ask, but became indignant. How dare he say I'm not a Christian? And never went back to the counselor again. Let's move on to Tina. She's a Christian mom. She's got teenage boys. One's about 16. One day she got home early from an appointment. He didn't know she was there. He had his gaming headphones on with his little microphone set. She was walking past his room. He was playing a video game, and what did she hear? But out of his mouth came a slew of curse words. She couldn't believe her ears, and she stopped at his door for a moment and heard more. She gave it a little time, let him finish up his game, and went and talked to him about it. He said, what, what was this you were saying? And he denied it. You didn't hear me say that. You must have heard something else. You must have heard people talking, not me. She said, no, it was definitely you, and I've never heard you use language like that. What is with this? But he stuck to his story. She was so distraught over this, she called her pastor, and her pastor said, well, I, 
that's not like him. I, I do think you should probably take the gaming system away until he at least admits what he did. And so mom goes home and decides she prefers the status quo and said nothing. A week or so later goes by, pastor calls. Hey, just wondering how that went. Thought I'd follow up on it. She says, oh, we had a wonderful talk. It went well, thank you. I hung up the phone. What do we have here? We have an old lady who's afraid of her friends. And she's afraid of what her Christian friend would think. And she's afraid that her husband caught her in a lie. And we have a man who's afraid of his unsafe bosses and a man who's afraid of the future and a man who's afraid of what other people think of him. And we have a mom who's afraid to confront a son and afraid what her pastor might think. And what has the fear of man gotten us? But a lot of lying, hasn't it? A lot of bad decisions. And the fear of man has gotten us where into the mind of God has it. Now, would you say these stories are true to life? Would you say you can even find yourself in one of those little scenes? I'm sure we can. Because David here is trying to get at something. David, the man after God's own heart, the sweet psalm-writing king, he too had a gnawing problem with the fear of man. And that fear of man led him to all sorts of troubles. And that's what we're going to see in this passage here. Do you want, do, do you find yourself lying? Do you find yourself in hard situations where you're navigating little landmines that you've created? I bet you could trace that back to the fear of man. Do you want to be free from the fear of man? It's a hard thing to be free from. And there's only one way to be free from it. And let's see what David has to say. Let's see what David has to say about that. I had you open your Bibles to Psalm 34. And I want you to look at the title of that psalm. Look at the title of that psalm. Oh, David, on, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. Do you remember the passage I had you turn to previous? I had you turn to 1 Samuel 21. Let's turn there now. Keep your thumb in Psalm 34, and let's turn over to 1 Samuel 19. David apparently wrote this psalm during a very distinct time in his life, and that time is recorded in 1 Samuel 19. So let's turn there now, because you can't understand Psalm 34 without understanding 1 Samuel 19. Did I say 21? I meant 19. 1 Samuel 19. Oh, my apologies. 1 Samuel 19. I don't know why I said 21. 1 Samuel 19. <laughs> no, I was right the first time. I wrote it down wrong in my point. It's 21. Sorry. I was right the first time. 1 Samuel 21. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And David took these words to heart, 
and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow up uh, to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David then departed. Okay, so let's get into this passage and see what happened. I'm going to pretend that you know nothing about King David. So let's pretend that you don't know anything about the man and start from there. David was a king of Israel, but he's not king yet. And I want you to know when 1 Samuel 21 and Psalm 34 were written, to that point, David had lived a rather charmed life. I've written down some of the highlights so far in David's life. David was anointed by Samuel to be king in 1 Samuel 16, 13. David didn't ask for that. David didn't seek it. The old man just showed up and anointed him to be king. But David wasn't king yet. David then goes and hears the taunts of the giant Goliath. And David takes his sling and stones, and even people who aren't Christians and don't know Christianity or anything about the Bible know this story. And David slew Goliath. It's the great underdog story. David would say, actually, no, Goliath was the underdog because I had God fighting for me. Goliath never stood a chance. Well, from there, David goes on this string of unbroken victories, victory everywhere he goes. And the men at Achish referenced this. The women were singing songs about David. Saul has slain his thousands, but David, his tens of thousands. And then David, in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 20 through 27, gets to marry the girl of his dreams. Michael, the daughter of Saul, David was in love with her. She was in love with him. And he got to do it simply by killing some Philistines. And David went into the service of his king and then became the king's son-in-law. So, you see, David here is riding high in this charmed life. But then things start to change. Things start to change. The king, his father-in-law, begins to get jealous. And that relationship begins to sour. And in 1 Samuel 19, maybe that's where I got a little confused. In 1 Samuel 19, 1 through 17... That's not me. Um, some, there is, a, there is a, an animal in the sound system somewhere. Um, we'll get that figured out. Um, our apologies. Where was I? Saul is jealous of David. And in 1 Samuel 19, verses 1 through 17, he tries to kill him. And so David is forced to go on the run. David is fleeing from Saul. And David decides to go to a city called Gath. Gath is a large Philistine town. It's got large walls. In fact, it's a, it's a daunting fortress. It wasn't overthrown for many years. And then once it did get overthrown, it was overthrown a few times, but the kings that overthrew it would immediately occupy it and turn it into their own fortress because they knew what a tough nut it was to crack. And so David goes to Gath to see the king Achish. But before David goes there, he does something. You see, Gath was a special place. Gath was the hometown of Goliath. And David, for reasons known only to him, 
goes and gets Goliath's sword in 1 Samuel 21.9. And then he shows up in Goliath's hometown with Goliath's sword and asks for safe harbor. Achish was inclined to give it to him. In our passage here in 1 Samuel 21, he's called Achish. In Psalm 34, he's called Abimelech. So you know, Abimelech is a title. It means my father is king. And so it's a, a title of hereditary rulership. So he was Abimelech, the hereditary king, by the name of Achish. I hope that makes sense. Well, David shows up, and Achish is inclined to help him. Achish will help him later in life. But Achish's counselors say, this is the guy that the women sing songs about, that they say he's killed his tens of thousands. They had their information a little bit wrong. They said he's king. Turns out he was only anointed to be king. But they said, we need to get rid of this guy. We can't keep this guy around. And suddenly David realized his vulnerability. Suddenly he realized he was in hostile territory and maybe, maybe because of that charmed life he'd lived to that point, there was a fair amount of naivete going on in David's mind. And suddenly he's struck with terror. The passage says that David feared a great fear of Achish. It says that he feared muchly, or he intensely feared Achish, the king of Gath. David was trembling in his boots. The man who fearlessly ran up to Goliath, armed with nothing but a sling and stones, is suddenly very afraid of the man Achish, who had done nothing but be friendly to him. And so David does something alarming. He, he turns his behavior into that of a madman. Now, think about this for just a second. It would be very challenging to feign insanity. He walked into the city completely sane. They knew the man to be completely sane. And so he would have had to put on an Academy Award-winning performance to convince everybody that he was, in fact, a lunatic. He drooled all down his beard. He was walking up to walls and scratching on them, perhaps babbling and talking, and he had to really stick to it. He couldn't just act it for an hour and leave it be. He had to stay in character this way the entire time. It was silly. It was foolish. It was a lie. And it worked. He was released. But so you know, David is not impressed with himself. He says, I was a poor man. I was in trouble. He's telling people in Psalm 34 to walk without deception. In fact, I want you to see something in Psalm 34. He's making fun of himself. He's chastising himself. Look at verse 8. Let's go back to Psalm 34, and we'll stay there the rest of the time. So David is writing Psalm 34 in response to God's deliverance, even though he had made himself yet more vulnerable, even though he'd He'd jumped from the frying pan now into the fire. Go down to verse 8 of Psalm 34. 
most commentators think this is the most important verse of this passage. It says, taste, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. That word taste is used elsewhere in this passage. Flip back with me to the title. It says, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. What word in there is the same Hebrew word? Anybody want to guess? What word in that description is the same word as taste? Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and went away. Well, it's the word behavior. <laughs> the word behavior and the word taste are the exact same Hebrew words. David is using this as a bit of a pun. It's a Hebrew word that has two different senses, perception and taste. What is taste, after all, other than perception? Dirk can eat something just fine that then I try, and it feels like I have molten lava in my mouth, okay, from the spiciness. He has worked his way. He perceives it to be fine. I perceive it to be death, okay? He can eat very spicy things. Perception. And what David is doing here is saying, this is what I wrote when I changed my perception, when I changed my taste before Abimelech. And had I been tasting of the Lord, had I been perceiving correctly of the Lord, I would have found a different way out of this situation. So David writes Psalm 34 because he realizes that God delivered him despite himself, not because of himself. Psalm 34, you might want to write this down in your notes, is an acrostic. It is every verse begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So we might say it this way, fearing God from A to Z. Okay, That's how we would say it. David did this for memory's sake. You can always remember what the next line was because you just go to the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And David also did this to communicate thoroughness. He's going to talk to us thoroughly about the fear of man and the fear of God. Because of this alphabetic structure, we can't put it together like a Pauline epistle, like Paul's very tightly ordered logic. The way that we study this is more in terms of themes. How does David repeat himself? Because the structure he's following more of the alphabet, we have to focus more on what he repeats. And what he repeats is... Three points, and we're going to race through the first two, so you know, we're going to get through those very quickly, and then we'll arrive at the third. David commands the fear of God. David coaxes out of us the fear of God. And David commends the fear of God. And what David is telling us is, do you want to be free from the fear of man? Do you want to be free from all of its ugly consequences? Do you want to be free of all the sins associated with it? There's only one solution, and that is the fear of God. He commands it, he coaxes it, and he commends it. So let's get through those first two very quickly, and then we'll move on to the third. First of all, David commands that we fear God. This is, of course, the first three verses, a call to worship. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. He goes on to verse 3. He says, O oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. 
This word, let us be glad. This is, let us rejoice. Let us magnify. Well, we're going to cause God to grow in our hearts. We're going to open up our perception of him. We're going to exalt him, meaning that we're going to lift him high. David is commanding us to open up our awe, our reverence of the Lord. The word fear has a connotation, yes, of what we would think of with fear, but it means more than that. It means to revere, to honor. How many of you would say when you were children that you did not do X, Y, or Z simply because you knew what your father would do to you if he found out? How many would you say that? (laughs) You love your dad, right? You love him. But you also know what his character is. That's this word, of fear here. It's a respect and an honoring that's rooted in love and admiration. The same hands that can be rough with you in chastisement can immediately hold you close in comfort. This is the sort of awe that David is advocating. He says in verse 9 that we're to fear the Lord. He says that he calls upon all those who've been set apart to fear the Lord. It's a command. We're commanded to set aside awe and respect and admiration of the Lord in our hearts. We're not to take the Lord lightly. We're to lift him up. We're to magnify him. We're to make his name great, beginning in our own hearts. He goes on to tell us in verses 13 and 14 that there is victory in fear. He says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. How will you ever obey all those commands? How will you ever get victory over these things that have kept you down for so long? How many times, honestly, don't don't raise your hands, but I would say the majority of us, it is far more natural for us to lie than it is for us to tell the truth. It's so easy It's so easy to fudge. How are you ever going to conquer that? How are you ever going to correct this lifetime of deceit? David says it will only come by exalting the Lord in your hearts. Because God sees into your heart where people do not. And it's there where the Lord will begin to effect his change. The fear of God is coaxed out of us. David, is he commands us, yes, but he's not sitting up from his judgment throne on high, hitting us with a gavel. He's coaxing us to fear the Lord as well. Verse 8, I've already mentioned this verse before. He says, taste and see. I would mentioned that this is the word behavior in the title. And in 1 Samuel 21, 13, David wants you to taste and see. David wants you to put God to the test. David says, listen, I realize that if you begin to fear the Lord, you might begin to feel vulnerable. You're going to feel lowly and underneath. You're going to worry of what will happen to you. But I want you to put God to the test. I want you to taste and see that the Lord is good. He tells us to come and listen. He says, by, by, he, he, he tells us in verse 11, he says, Come, children, come around me, 
and I will teach you how to fear the Lord. And this is sort of a playful metaphor. Come and sit around me. He knows he's talking to adults, but he's trying to give this impression that we all have much to learn. And David, too, had to be a student. And so he's sort of coaxing out of us this fear of the Lord. And then David asks a rhetorical question for all of our benefit. He says, do you love long life? Do you love many days? Do you love good? How many of you would say no to that? No, I don't want to live a long life. No, I don't want to have a good life filled with many days, good things. I don't want that. All of you would say you want that. And David says, do you want that? Well, let me show you how to have it. And the way to have it is by fearing God, by fearing the Lord. We're told in the book of Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, that brings us to our third point. The fear of God commended. The fear of God commended. David's own experience commends the fear of God. He says in verse 4, I wanted you to look there, actually. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Let's ask a question. When David went to the city of Gath and Achish was there, was David under any real threat of being killed? Was David under any real threat? No. None whatsoever. Achish had brought him into his kingdom. Achish would do him favors later on down the road. God had promised David that he would rule as king. If David were killed then, could he be king? Well, no. David had every confidence that he could survive that experience. It wasn't real. That fear wasn't real. Yet, how many of us would admit to being very afraid of unreal things? Very often, those of us who've perhaps struggled in the past with depression, for example, will run from things simply because they cause or potentially cause depression. In other words, we're afraid of fear. And the fear of fear causes us to act a certain way. But are those things real? No. And David says right here, I was afraid of an unreal thing. God didn't deliver me from anything real because there was nothing to deliver me from. But God did, in his graciousness and goodness, deliver me from the fear. The fear was only between my two ears. The fear was limited to me. And yet God was so good that he delivered me to, from this thing that was unique to me. Does that make sense, everybody? David says, I was a poor man, and I called on the Lord, and he mightily delivered me. 
Now here's where the bulk of the sermon should be, though we're running short on time. I knew we wouldn't be able to cover it all today, but what I wanted us to do was to get to this point so that you could write some things down for further reflection and study it out on your own. And I wanted to leave a sufficient time for me to put you in the right direction. Okay. I've been talking a lot about fearing the Lord. We're commanded to fear the Lord. We're coaxed to fear the Lord. David says, listen to me, a man who feared people and it got me in trouble. And listen to me, a man who started fearing God and it got me out of trouble. He says, fear God. Now, immediately what we're going to say is, I'm just switching fears. Seems like a very fearful life. I'm going from one brand of weakness to the next brand of weakness. How does that strengthen my position? Am I not going to go along my whole days cowering before something? David would say this to you. He would say, you need to fear God because when you fear God, you have nothing else to fear. You have nothing else to fear from God, and you have nothing else to fear from man. The reverence and the awe of God, because he is so trustworthy, and because his character is so commendable, he is so committed to your good that you now no longer need fear anything. He says that God delivers those who fear him. He emphasizes this in verse 7, in verse 17, and in verse 18. It says in verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. This word deliver is a strong word. It means to mightily lift them out, to take them up and out. God will deliver. He says in verses 15 and 17, that God not only is committed to deliver those who fear him, God is attentive to those who fear him. God is not a, a, an unthinking, uncaring, medieval ruler who cares nothing for the sake of his subjects. God listens. He's attentive to your needs. And even when you find yourself afraid of something that's not real, even when you find yourself afraid of fear or afraid of some other immaterial or foolish thing that in your best moments you realize is silly. But when the fear descends upon you, oh, how real it feels. God says, when you're there, I want you to know I hear and I listen. I'm attentive to your needs. None of that is lost on me, says God. And when you fear me, I rush to your aid. Number three, God provides for those who fear him. Do you remember our little opening introduction, the gentleman who took a job in a far-off place to the neglect of his spiritual condition? How many times have I heard that story? Well, what's he afraid of? He's afraid of losing his job. He's afraid of falling out of God's good grace. He's afraid of falling, well, not God's good grace, his employer's good grace. Does not God own all the jobs? near your local church? Does not God own all the career opportunities? Does not God turn the hearts of employers whithersoever he wills? God can provide for you. Fear him first. Put him first. Career some way, way, way place down the line. 
God's, Jesus says, you can't love me and money. You'll serve one over the other every time. You say, but how am I going to be provided for in the future? God will take care of you. David says right here, even young lions get hungry, but those who fear the Lord have no want. They have no lack of anything. Peyton was asking me earlier this week, I think it was, he asked me, I don't remember what he asked. He asked if I've ever had zero dollars in my bank account. I think that's what he asked me. I don't remember the exact question. <laughs> I said, well, one time, there was one time in my life we got really close. I, 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 had, I had two job opportunities, one that would require me to work a few Sundays a year and one that would not. And out of deference to the Lord and not wanting to work on Sunday, I chose the one that would not. It paid a little less. There were a few other benefits that were nice. But the, the rub on that job was that they withheld your first check and they only paid every other week. So I went a whole month without pay. And I remember putting my ATM card in the machine and I had like $5.36 left in the bank. And the Lord provided cash paying same day jobs from a neighbor who let me paint the walls of his house. The Lord provided landscaping installation jobs and the lady paid me double what I deserved same day. We didn't miss a meal. And I was telling the Lord, Lord, I chose this job to respect you. <laughs> Can you take care of us? And the Lord did. How much greater did God provide for David? God opposes those who are wicked, and he does so on behalf of those who fear him. And then last, verse 20. God offers proof of his protection. Verse 20, he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. We're told that this was fulfilled when Jesus of Nazareth was hanging on a cross. And the Jewish leaders, not wanting to have a corpse illegally tried, hang on a Saturday. And so they hypocritically dispatched a Roman soldier to break his legs. But Jesus was already dead. And so his legs weren't broken. The gospel writer tells us that it was to fulfill this passage. Jesus was totally vulnerable. Jesus was hanging naked on a cross. And he completely submitted himself to the whims of men. And in doing so, even then, God was protecting him while making him to be sin for us. God was concerned about his very bones, even while he was laying upon him the chastisement that our sins deserved. God protected him while punishing him. And God recorded this so that you know, even when you're facing troubles, even if you find yourself under God's chastising hand, 
God hasn't forsaken you. God is still with you. God still loves you. He's still protecting you. And the fear of God opens you to incredible braveness to confess your sins, to accept his forgiveness, and to see his mercy. So let's make two applications. Number one, if you find yourself battling the fear of man, there's a few places not to look. Don't look backward. You know what you'll find? A sinner acting sinfully. (laughs) Don't look inward. You know what you'll find? A sinner with sinful motivations. Don't look forward. All you're going to find there are reasons to be afraid and uncertainties that will drive your fear further. If you find yourself fearing man, look upward. Look upward to the God who stands above it all and controls it all and loves you and gave his son for you. Your future is in nail-pierced hands, says the Puritan. Look to the God who has made commitments to deliver you and not forsake you and to be with you and to help you and to redeem you and to provide for you. Taste the Lord and see that he is good. And then your perception of the whole situation you're facing will change. And you will begin to see God and his hand in it. Rather than the men who stand around it. So here's the question. How do you get the fear of the Lord? How do you conjure it? You stand on your back porch and hold your hands up in a certain way and Say, I will fear the Lord today. Oh, I guess you could. I don't think that's going to help much. Now, the only way to learn to fear the Lord is to look into the Lord's word. And you can see proof of that in Isaiah 66, 2. We look to the Lord by looking into his word. If you want to cultivate a fear of the Lord, you develop a habit of looking into his word. On the back table, we have reading plans for this year. If you've never made it through the Bible in a year, I think this is your year. You can do it. There are days, the days that we're in the Psalter, that are a little shorter, and you can catch up if you fall behind a little bit. But you can do it. Some of you will say, I'm not a great reader. And to you, I say, awesome. Don't fight it. Did you know there are a zillion Bible reading apps that paid actors, world-renowned actors, will read you the Bible for free? So I, I can, I would fall asleep to that. Okay, you come see me, and I'm going to give you the name of five preachers. And between them, there's about 50,000 sermons that they've preached. And I will tell you where you can find their sermons. You download them to your phone, 
I've got a little Bluetooth thing. It plugs into my cigarette lighter, and it Bluetooths to my radio, and I play sermons to myself through my phone and my car stereo. Most of you already have car stereos that will link to your phone, but even if you don't, I got one for you. And if you come to me with any other excuse, stand back and I will defeat them all, okay? You need to behold and hear the word of God regularly. And that is the only way to overcome the fear of man, which I think we can see has so many negative fruits in our lives. You want to be free of that? You can be a slave to it the rest of your life if you like. It's a hard road. You're not going to like it. I'd have you be free of it. And the way to that is behold the word of God. Let that cultivate in you a fear of God so that you don't have to be afraid of anything else. Let's pray. Father, would you put in us a spirit-wrought determination to get the word of God into our hearts? May we fear you. May we hold you in awe so that we don't have to be afraid of anybody or anything else. There really is a fearless life to be had, a fearless life of men, a fearless life of temporary things. But that begins by fearing you, having a love and awe and reverence of you. Help us to cultivate that now in our hearts. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.